Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Widely praised for meticulous research, fine prose, and the compelling narrative drive of her stories, Mary Doria Russell is the award-winning author of seven best-selling novels, including the science fiction classics The Sparrow and Children of God. The World War II thriller A Thread of Grace and a political romance set in 1921 Cairo, called Dreamers of the Day, With her novels, Doc, and Epitaph, Russell has redefined two towering figures of the American West, the lawman Wyatt Earp and the dental surgeon Doc Holliday. Her latest novel, The Women of the Copper Country, tells the story of the young union organizer Annie Clements, who was once known as America's Joan of Arc. Mary holds a Ph.D. in biological anthropology from the University of Michigan and taught anatomy at the Case Western Reserve University School of Dentistry. She and Don Russell have been happily married for an unusually high percentage of the years since 1970. They live in Cleveland, Ohio. Exactly. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Mary Doria Russell, who will be talking to us about her book, The Women of the Copper Country. Thank you, Mary, for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Um, I have to tell you that uh, this is my my absolute last public appearance um, and uh, I, I, I wish I felt better and could do a better job for you, but um, I'm, I've been sick for about 12 days and I'm, I'm nowhere near done with this. It's not COVID, it's just plain ordinary flu, which is a terrible thing. So um, <laughs> I'll do my best. I also will send out a link to um, the, uh, uh, the video that my husband and I put together for this book. And I'll just send it as a blanket to everyone who uh, Evelyn uh, let know about about this uh, event, and that answers the, the 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 frequently asked questions like how did you get started on this book and uh, why did you use the quotes from uh, um, uh, Romeo and Juliet? Uh, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> I can do a. a, a quick answer to that, but I'm not, I'm not going to do a formal presentation. I'm going to send you the video, which is much better than what I could do verbally. There's pictures and everything. So. Well, do you want to just have, a, um, would you like us to just ask you a few questions? Or, or, or? I, I anticipated that that was what was going to happen. I'm at your disposal, but uh, I'm, I the, uh, the video is a much better presentation than I can possibly pull t- together tonight. Well, I'm gonna start with one question that has been on my mind. And that is um, like, how often have you visited the Copper Country? I was up there about three times. Um, just got back actually, uh, because uh, the uh, uh, Michigan, uh, Great Michigan Read was uh, in the, the up, we had five events in the Upper Peninsula last week. Um, which is where I got sick. I held together for the first three and then the fourth one, boy, it was at the Peter White Library, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I had no uh, um, personal connection to the UP. My husband, uh, he, had, he and his parents used to go up all the time. His father was a rock hound and went uh, um, searching for agates and tumbled stones and stuff. So he had good memories of the area, but I had never been there. Uh, and I had really kind of stumbled into the uh, the story of the 1913 strike uh, while I was just really, it was four o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon and I was waiting for a four o'clock uh, baseball game to come on. Um, and 
I had an hour to kill and I was just flipping through the channels and I came across the um, uh, the PBS documentary Red Metal, which is about the 1913 strike. And that was where I, the first time that I had ever heard of Annie Clements or James McNaughton or the, uh, the Keweenaw or the Copper Country or any of it. It was absolutely new to me. Um, but I had just gotten finished with Epitaph, which is about uh, Tombstone, Arizona. And that was a silver mining town. So I kind of got interested in hard rock mining from there. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I got an hour to kill. I'll just watch this documentary. Um, so I ended up thinking, well, okay, I've got um, uh, Annie Clements, this extraordinary young woman, 25 years old, six feet, three inches tall, uh, and the uh, recently uh, elected president of the um, Women's Auxiliary of the uh, um, uh, the, the miners, uh, the, uh, see, I'm, I'm not thinking real clearly. Uh, Local 15, Western Federation of Miners, be there. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then James McNaughton, who was determined that he was going to kill that union and he would do anything that he had to, whatever was necessary to kill the union. Uh, and he put it in, in, in uh, uh, terms just that stark. So I had thought, well, you know, I got a heroin, I got a nemesis, I, I might be able to do something with this. And I went out on Facebook and said, I just watched this documentary. Uh, I, there might be a story here for me to tell. About 15 minutes later, I got a, uh, uh, an email from a friend, Rivka Tobin, who's, she said, my great grandfather was the last man to die in the mines before the, uh, before the strike. And, you know, so I have no connection, but, but I, I know somebody whose family is intimately connected with the events of this, uh, of that summer. So uh, I took her out for breakfast the very next morning and uh, she gave me all kinds of information about her family. And, uh, and that was where I got started on. I just kept pulling on the threads until uh, I, I had a sense of where, where the story needed to go. So, oh, I'm sorry. I went into the weeds on that. I, I went up to the to the Keweenaw several times to, uh, you know, just to see the area, to get a sense of the geology. Uh, to um, there's a great deal of the uh, uh, of Calumet still in existence from uh, over a hundred years ago. There's a lot of workmen's uh, cottages. There are oh, the big sandstone buildings are all still there. Uh, it's it's quite a lively town now, uh, and so. Um, uh, yeah, I, I was just there last week and was really impressed with how, how things have changed since I was there five or six years ago. Well, we've got almost 30 people on the chat. Would anyone else like to ask a question? I know I have a few, but I'm sure somebody else does. Okay, we've got one that's coming on the chat. Actually, they're not saying it out loud. And it says... Um, what knowledge or experience did you have with labor relations and unions before writing the book? It, that's the first time I've been asked that question. Good on you, thank you. Um, not a lot. Uh, I have uh, always, I've worked freelance, so I've never been in a, in a, a, a kind of job that uh, where organizing and, uh, and, and unions uh, were uh, directly in, uh, associated with what I was doing. Uh, I'm certainly politically pro-union. Uh, I think that uh, um, if if corporations can have um, boards of trustees, 
to operate on their behalf or on the behalf of all of the, the uh, shareholders, I think that uh, um, labor should have its own uh, uh, elected representation uh, so that the, uh, the negotiations, negotiations take place in, in a, uh, a relatively equal manner. Uh, that seems just logical to me. Um, but I have never really done anything on my own. Now, what I did do for the book was to get in touch with several number of people who had been involved with labor uh, negotiations, who had been involved with organizing, who had been involved with uh, strikes. One of my best uh, um, uh, readers, early readers, was a guy who was a child during uh, the 1963 steelworkers strike in, in Gary, Indiana. And he remembered it as a child and what it was like to, you know, to, to watch the adults negotiating their lives in these very, very uh, um, difficult uh, conditions and how they managed, how the women managed in particular. I was able to, to talk to a number of people whose, whose mothers had been involved with uh, uh, unions uh, where the, uh, the labor force was largely male but the um, the women were the one that, ones that were keeping the families going and making it possible for the men to continue to strike and not just say, all right, we give, we're done, and, and, and uh, take whatever the, the corporation was willing to throw to them. Very good answer. And Vanessa, that's a good question. Shelly has her hand up. Shelly. Mary, I really enjoyed this book. In fact, I enjoyed it so much that when we did it for my Ishpeming um, Library Book Club, I also suggested it to my University of Detroit Book Club. Um, so, you know, it's been read by a lot of people, obviously. But the question I have is, you bring so many issues into the book, because um, it's not only about the mining and the difficulty with mining and the union there's all those women's issues in there. There's all yes. of those um, immigrant issues in there. Yes. Yeah. I'm wondering, yeah. were there issues that you would have liked to develop here that you, you know, you have to write more volumes <laughs> to do that. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm retired. As of, <laughs> As of eight o'clock tonight, I'm done. Um, and no, the, um, uh, there were a few things where uh, I needed to cut. Um, because the, uh, I had a very good editor who said, you know, I, I understand why you want this chapter in here, but I think it, it deadens the action. Uh, it was an entire chapter that was about the immigrants who were met on the docks in New York and were put on trains and sent to Calumet to, to bust heads and break unions. Uh, and so uh, she, she, she's a really good editor. What she told me was, Mary, this is a really good chapter and I find it very interesting. I think that what we're gonna do is if we, if we take this out, we can make it an extra at the back of the paperback edition, which was a complete lie that never happened. But <laughs> nevertheless, she got me over the, the hesitation to, to kill one of my darlings. So yeah, I would have liked to have done more with the immigrant populations, but again, you have to you have to focus in a in a book like this. Uh, one of the um, things that came to me while I was doing the uh, um, the UP tour last week was that, uh, especially when I got to to uh, Calumet, where there are people who have written books themselves about what I've written a novel about, 
And one of them was very unhappy with me because I had not written the same book that she thought ought to have been written. And so I was able to tell her, look, you know, for people who write nonfiction, for, for real historians, um, you see a much broader picture. You're looking at a whole forest of flora and fauna and, and uh, geography and, and you know, uh, uh, climate. You have a much larger uh, field of view. For a, a, a historical novelist, it's much more like a gardener who is creating a bonsai tree. We have to prune, we have to uh, uh, shape, we have to cut roots sometimes in order to be able to fit it into a smaller pot. It's a much different uh, way of, of uh, approaching the history. But what one of the nicest things that a bookseller ever told me was that she was always glad when she sold one of my books because uh, she knew that within about a month, that reader would come back and would buy three nonfiction books about the same topic, right? So the, the novelist's job is to create an emotional connection between the reader and the history, right? I'm giving you a reason to care about a strike that took place in the far north of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan a long time ago. Uh, and uh, that's, that's my contribution to the history is to make people give a damn about what happened then and to make the connections with what is happening in our own world today. And there are many. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna pick up, we've got a few questions that came on the chat and Deb says that you're a trooper, Mary. Uh, thanks for with us. After reading your book, I got to wonder what happened to James McNaughton. Doing an internet search, I really couldn't find much. Did you? No. Yeah. McNaughton covered his tracks. Uh, he did not want to be known. He he uh, kept himself away from, he didn't feel anybody had a right to know anything about him. Uh, much of what he does and says in the book is taken from uh, the uh, congressional hearings that took place in 1914 after the, uh, the, the Italian Hall disaster. Uh, and uh, so I was able to get quotes from him, but he was a very private person who did not want to be known. Um, and I believe that he also, when, when he left Calumet, it was in the 1930s, he managed to squeeze another another 15 years out of those mines, which is not easy. Um, but uh, the, the uh, custom at the time for really rich people was that if you moved away from a house that you had built, you tore it down rather than let anybody else live in it. His house is no longer there. That's not one of the buildings that still exists in Calumet. The Hotson house, which I described in the first chapter with uh, the, the baby elephant wallpaper, that's real. The Hotson house is still there. It's a hotel now, you can stay there. The baby elephant wallpaper is still in the dining room. Um, so it was a matter of, of doing the research around him. Uh, he was, uh, we did find that he was, he was born in Canada. So he was an immigrant. Ha -ha. Um, <laughs> and that was not something that he wanted to have be known. He was, he, you know, you, you have no business asking me any questions about me. I owe you nothing. That was his attitude. 
Okay, and one more question off the chat, and then maybe we'll have some more from our, our, our viewers there. Mm -hmm. um, it says, this is from Sue. She says, of all the books you've written, was there one that you really liked writing? Doc. Doc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only one that I've ever actually reread myself uh, is uh, Doc, which is about Doc Holliday. Oh. Um, I'm very maternal about that boy. Uh, I, I have a real emotional connection to him in a way that I, you know, they, they come and go. Usually when the books are over, they're over and I never look at them again. Um, but uh, I, I sometimes miss Doc and I, I, uh, I, I would like to spend more time with him. So I have occasionally, it has a, there's a wonderful reader. Uh, Mark Bramhall did the, um, uh, the audio book and he is superb. Uh, so you should, you should definitely get it, get a hold of the of the audio book if you can, and uh, and just enjoy his performance because he's quite wonderful. I order on Fridays. Okay, there you go. I'll there you go. Library for those of you who are listening, so you'll be able to interlibrary loan it or come here and pick mm -hmm. it up. Um, does anybody before I get back to the chat and what people have written, anyone out there want to just ask a question? Tyler has one. Tyler Tischler, meet Mary. You're both. <laughs> Tyler has written many beautiful, wonderful books about the Upper Peninsula. Ah, how much do you hate mine? <laughs> well, I've, I've written both both novels and nonfiction, so I can understand what you're saying and how difficult it is. Um, yeah. So my my question really is uh, partly: Have people given you a bad time about anything in the book historically, and specifically about the Italian Hall disaster? And um, the doors on the Italian Hall, I've always heard the problem was that they opened inward, but I think maybe that was a myth. Uh, so it, 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 yeah, there, there was a lot of stuff where uh, in, in, the, in the emotion and the, and the devastation of that afternoon, uh, a lot of rumors started, a lot of things went back and forth. Uh, there were, um, you know, there was an, uh, an inquiry into what had happened, but it was run by the, by bought politicians. And they were given about, uh, I think it was three hours to take depositions from 80 people. Uh, the, uh, there have been a number of, uh, theories about whether they opened in or they opened out. So what I tried to do was finesse it. Uh, when when I, I'm up against a piece of history where there's controversy, uh, I try to write such that both sides couldn't read into what I wrote <laughs> and decide that that's what I meant. Um, there is, for example, uh, the, uh, the story of the, um, the, the guy who came to the top of the stairs and yelled fire, okay? Lots of controversy over that. The people who were up close to him saw the, the uh, Citizens United button on a dark coat, white button on a dark coat. But then in the hearing, they took depositions from people who were much further back in the hall, who weren't in a position to see whether or not he had a, a, a button on. And so you had, you had kind of skewing the, uh, the evidence such that, you know, well, we have eight people say they did, but we have 80 people say they did ignoring the fact that those 80 were not in a position to be able to see. Um, uh, I'm a cop's daughter, and uh, cops will tell you that uh, uh, for, for some uh, uh, famous um, crimes, 
people will come forward and will confess to them, even though they, they couldn't possibly have been there that day. Uh, there have been, I think, three different people who confessed to being the guy who, who yelled fire. Um, but you, we don't know. We just don't know. And so I made up a backstory for a, uh, a, a drunk who would have reason for his own, in his own mind for yelling fire, but that was because he just got fired because he was shoplifting from the store, store owner. Uh, and so I, that way I don't have to pin it on anybody in particular. Um, but I also recognize in the, in, in the book that this is very ambiguous uh, and we don't really know. And the, and the, the, the real story here is the, is the tragedy that it happened at all. Um, I think that what was really important for me to understand was that the people in the Italian hall had just seen all of the pictures of the, the, the triangle shirtwaist factory girls jumping out of a burning building. That was fresh news. And it was, it was, they'd seen the photographs. They'd, you know, this was something that they were really aware of. There were fire escapes opposite the, the staircase. So if anybody had had the presence of mind to go out the back rather than the way they came in, they would have, they would have gotten out. The problem was that this was a children's party and you had a bunch of little kids. We're talking, you know, three, four, five, seven years old. They had come up the stairs. And when somebody starts yelling fire, everybody goes back the way they came. Those kids aren't in a position to remember that there was a fire escape out the other side. And of course, the, the, uh, the adults would be lunging for them. And you had this cascade of bodies that just filled up the whole stairwell. So um, that was the kind of thing that just it, it particularly uh, makes uh, the mass death of kids even more tragic. I have a question. This is Sharon. I know you can't see me, but can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you. Okay. Um, I was intrigued when you started with the quote from the scriptures and then you continued with Shakespeare. Oh, with Shakespeare. I no, everything is Shakespeare. Well, no. Oh, well, there, there, there was that one, the, the, the workman yeah. is worthy of his wage. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yes, yeah. yes. And, and, I, and I, I've watched uh, videos on you, um, where you where you explained why you used Romeo and Juliet, and I understand that. But I was curious why you started with the uh, quote from uh, Matthew, and then didn't continue with that, but with, uh, with Shakespeare's quotes. Uh, just because I thought the initial quote gave it a sort of, you know, this is, this is some uh, an issue that you know we've been we've been dealing with for over two thousand years. Uh, what do you owe the people who work for you? And the um, answer is a decent wage. Right, right. And how uh, another question I had, real quick one, uh, was how McNaughton differed uh, from the the robber barons. Uh, he didn't own anything. He was salaried. I don't believe that he was a, he was a shareholder. He worked for the shareholders. So, uh, and he was also a time and motion uh, efficiency expert. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, one of the things that just really frustrated me was I really wanted to like him. Uh, I, I'm a big time and, and uh, motion efficiency fan. Uh, I, I wrote, uh, read Cheaper by the Dozen when I was like 12 years old. My, my kitchen is still set up the way that I, I, I described, you know, with point of first use and, and, and uh, 
a series of workstations. I still, you know, to me, that's that's the best way to cook. And I'm constantly upgrading the efficiency of my 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 work uh, or, uh, organization. Um, so I wanted to believe that maybe he had gotten his terrible reputation because a lot of the uh, uh, turn of the century uh, efficiency experts were very, um, they, they would measure how wide the, the uh, shovel should be for moving ore from the rock face to the, to the wagon that would carry it out. And they would decide how many degrees of turn were the most efficient for digging out a shovel and throwing it into the tram. Um, and, and, you know, that, that could be really annoying to the people who worked underground because it's like, you know, I've been a miner for 15 years and you're gonna tell me what kind of shovel to use. Um, so I thought that maybe I could set something up where he meant well, he didn't, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Thanks. He meant to get as much ore out of the underground mines in the Keweenaw as he could before the open pit copper mines of Arizona and the, and the American West shut him down. And that's what he did. Thank you. Mary, since now you're telling us the truth, um, somebody on the chat wanted to know, kind of getting back to our earlier point, do, do you after having you know researched and and written this book wrote wrote this book i don't know yeah. at the end of the day um do you have any suspicions on who that person was the no. drug distributor no no i really don't i really don't there was there was no information for me to go on okay. and uh, again this is one of the differences between writing uh, a novel and uh being someone who wants to dig into the history itself i was not willing to go uh, you know, spend a year and a half digging through court documents in order to do something where, you know, I, I, it's, it's um, seven pages in a novel that's, that runs 140,000 words. Uh, and so you have to, you have to kind of uh, cut your losses and decide this really doesn't change the story that I'm trying to tell. Now, if somebody else wants to go digging at it that, you know, God bless, but uh, not my job. Okay. And a couple people wanted to also say how much they like the book, Doc, and how it's highly recommended. Thank you. Thank you. That's my boy. Before I get to a few more comments here, does anyone out there live want to ask anything to Mary? Yes, I do. Okay, Julie. Um, I read um, Jerry Stanley's book entitled Big Annie of Calumet, A History of the Industrial Revolution. And I used it with middle school students and they found it fascinating. And also when I was in the copper country, I found copies of photographs of the coffins laid out of the yes. various things from the um, yes. Italian hall fire. And mm -hmm. I was curious, I never did find out if those were done by the actual photographer who was there. Did you look at any? Okay. Yeah. In my graphs. The the, uh, the the photographs that are um, uh, described in the book are real. Okay. Oh, yeah. And um, if you go to my website, which is just my name, www.marydoriarussell.com, uh, yeah. uh, click on the book and then click on historical figures and there will be photographs. And there was a local photographer whose name always escapes me and I'm sorry about that. Uh, but he was the one who actually took the photographs that I referred to in the book. Now... Uh, this is, again, someplace where uh, writing a novel is a different 
it, uh, um, job than uh, than writing history. I wanted to. Um, I, had, I had two things in mind when I when I made up uh, uh, Mike Sweeney. The first thing was I wanted to recognize how important the the new technology of photography and uh, the use of photographs in um, in newspapers had just begun, like just a few years before this happened. And they were, uh, uh, it, it was it was just revolutionary to be able to see and not just read these vast, you know, blocks of gray, gray print. Um, so I wanted to, to recognize that. And also uh, while I was writing that, I think you all remember that the, um, the, uh, the Syrian refugees that were pouring out of Syria as that war went on. There was a photograph of a little boy about three years old, face down on a beach in Greece. And for a minute, the world gave a damn. Okay. And it was, that's what I wanted Mike Sweeney to be able to do is to get the world to give a damn, even if it's only until next Tuesday. Uh, so I thought it was really important to include photography. The other reason that I made Mike Sweeney up is that, um, uh, poor Annie, um, she was what my, my, my mother-in-law used to call a bad picker. She married three times, she divorced three times. All three of them turned out to be violent wolves. She just, I don't know, you know, maybe there just weren't that, many nice guys around in 1913, but uh, she, uh, uh, she, she didn't divorce Joe until she was pregnant by her second husband. And that, so at the end of the, the, uh, the book, she was in fact pregnant. She did in fact divorce in April of 1914 and she moved to Chicago uh, where she moved in with, this, with the second husband. Um, he was a jerk too and I, <laughs> As a novelist, I get to decide. <laughs> so I gave her the boyfriend she deserved, not the boyfriend she had. <laughs> and if you don't like it, tough. <laughs> Write your own damn book. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. <clears throat> so, um, Mary, one thing Tyler had asked about the doors, and this gives me a good opportunity to introduce you to another one of our members, another fellow author like yourself. Um, Deborah K. Frontera wrote a wonderful book on this same situation called Living Living on in Sisu on Sisu. On yes. Sisu. On Sisu. Yeah. And she's here with us tonight, and she tells Tyler that the doors definitely opened outward. Um, and I just it's just such a yeah, pleasure for me to introduce yeah. two authors who wrote about the same thing in such different ways with different audiences. Um, Deborah, I, it was a great pleasure because we got a grant and we were able to buy all the fifth and sixth grade students a copy of her book. Oh, fabulous. Fabulous. Really written for their age. And, and one of those little girls, she grabbed me one time in this grocery store and told me how much she loved that book and how much she learned. And so it's it's really a, a a neat pleasure, you know, to have you both on tonight. And and Deborah, is there anything you want to say or ask Mary now that we have you two together? Um, I've been I've been listening to a lot of what she says. And when I first read the book, um, I kept thinking, wait a minute, there was no workhouse in Marquette. Oh, wait a minute, this. And then I got to the end and I read your historical notes, and I thought she should have put that in the front. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 that, I looked at it as a novel 
yes. and what you were doing with the characters. And yeah. so it was in some ways very different. Mine is also historical fiction, but I, I stuck a little closer to uh, the real happenings. But the mm -hmm. other thing I wanted to say is, yes, there is a photograph that shows those doors in the, in the Italian hall opened outward. And it was yeah. taken by John William Nera, who was the photographer you there you go yeah, that, that, yeah. yeah. so yeah. Uh, it all fit together yeah well the and other thing is that it, it doesn't really matter which way they opened because the kids stumbled somebody stumbled some mm -hmm. some child running down the stairs and it's 22 stairs I mean that's a long very steep stairway one stumbles and then the next one falls over him and yeah. then the next one and the next one and the next one so you have just a cascade of little bodies being crushed and uh, so to me, the, the, getting involved directly in the, did they open out? Did they open in? It, it, it's, you know, right. go, yeah. go for it. But it's not my job. Yeah. And it's not going to change. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't, it doesn't change the significance of what happened that day. Right. I, I put the comment on there because somebody in the chat asked, yep. you know, did the doors open outward or inward? Well, yeah, they did open outward. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. And then. Now, the, the next question, uh, we have another author on the call named Bill Spruill, who wrote a wonderful book all about Houghton and hockey. And he wanted me to tell you, Mary, that he's got some information about McNaughton that he is willing to share with you. Um, um, uh, you know what? It's too late, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Books out. Retiring tonight at eight o'clock, not rewriting anything. <laughs> that brings us to the next question. Uh -huh. what, someone wants to know what do you mean by retiring? Are you? I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I am going full JD Salinger. Uh, <laughs> oh, there my will be no more public life. <laughs> will you, uh, uh, you know, my my husband and I have have been married for fifty two years, hmm. and we have just we've retired and we're enjoying pottering. Uh, we enjoyed the garden where, you know, it's just, we cook together and it's been a long time. We worked very hard for a very, very long time. And I'm just, I'm done. You know, uh, I actually tried to, uh, to retire last summer and had actually had, had announced it on my website saying, you know, thanks for all the fish, but uh, I, I got to quit. It's, I'm, I'm, I really, I can't go any further with this. Um, I have not read, uh, written a word since I made that decision. So since the June of 2020, whatever it was in me that needed to write is over. Uh, and uh, this isn't the first time I've made a real sharp turn in my career uh, careers. I, I was an anthropologist for a long time too. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I taught gross anatomy at Case Western Reserve University. Uh, the whole novelist thing was uh, kind of an accident. I sort of backed into it. I thought I had an idea for a short story that turned out to be The Sparrow. And then that turned into Children of God and then The Thread of Grace and then you know, Dreamers of the Day. And it, it, it just, just kept pulling me along. But whatever that thread was, it snapped now. Um, I am enjoying a totally different uh, pastime, which is watercolors. Ooh. completely different part of the brain utterly utterly uh disconnected from anything that i've ever done before i've been a scientist i've been a novelist uh and uh and now i'm 
I'm playing with watercolors. I'm farting around with the uh, with watercolors, and then then suits me just fine right now. Wow. Okay. Well, that must make somebody want to ask a question. <laughs> Do you know what I want to ask? And I, I I don't want to hog this, so I'll make it quick. But I wondered if the fascination with your with with your main character was her height. Because in every interview, somebody's always mentioned about her height uh, when, yes. when, you know, Annie's height, when in. Big Annie. They called it? her Big Annie for Big a reason. Annie, Big Annie. And, 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 and so I'm wondering with these marriages and divorces, how much larger the men were than 6'3", if, if she allowed them to, to, to abuse her. So a couple of questions there. Yeah, I'm not sure what, you know, the dynamics of a marriage in which spousal abuse is common uh, is, uh, I, 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 I understood it for the first marriage. I got Joe. Um, he was bigger than she was. And, uh, and I think there was also the sense at the time that wife beating was to be expected and that she would uh, blame herself for having made him angry because that still happens. Mm -hmm. Um as far as her height goes and, and how it affected her, I mean, one of, the, one of the big questions that I had to answer as a novelist is what makes a woman like Annie Clements? You know, where does, she, where does this 25-year-old girl, north of beyond, step out in front of daily parades of, of minors on strike? Where does that come from? And so uh, it, it occurs, I, I have happened to know two um, Two people who were six feet three in seventh grade. So these are kids are 12 years old and they're already much bigger than anybody, much bigger than their teacher, is much bigger than most of the adults in their life. And <clears throat> they told me that when you're that size uh, early, people begin to, to, to react to you and to inter interact with you as though you were already an adult. Um, both of them looked like grown people and they were not, they were 12. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, I think that Annie, uh, because she was so much larger than the other kids in the class, remember most, a lot of them are, are pretty poorly uh, um, uh, fed uh, immigrant kids uh, from, from uh, uh, genetic backgrounds that weren't gonna get that big to begin with. Um, I think that she was called upon by the teachers to help, uh, to pass out books or slates or whatever it was to, you know, clean up the, uh, um, the blackboards and stuff. I think she was given responsibility very early on. So, so and you don't think it was a question of ego? Of what? Ego, her ego. Um, I, 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 I never got that impression, no. I think she wanted to be of service. I think that she, because she was childless, uh, after seven or eight years of marriage, there were no children and there had never been a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, as far as I know, um, I think that she, she has a tendency to literally see from, a, from a, a, a higher plane. And I think that she considered all those kids her kids. Uh, and it gave shape to her life in a way that uh, being a housewife with no children in 1913 did not give shape to her life. Uh, so there was, you know, again, you can argue with me, you can, uh, you can decide that I'm wrong about that, but that's how I understood her. 
Uh, I don't believe that it was ego, particularly because there wasn't that much of a payoff. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if anything, uh, she was put in a position of having enormous responsibility and very little power. So how that's long, always a, a difficult long, situation. Month-wise, how long was she active with the strike? Because from what I gathered, it was less than a year. Yes. Yeah, she had been uh, elected. Uh, it was, I think, the prior winter to 19, so the the, uh, the beginning of the winter of uh, 1912 to 1913. The strike started in uh, in July of 1913, and it was officially over on uh, 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 Easter Sunday of 1914. Mm -hmm. That was when the men uh, uh, voted to end the strike. Right. Okay, thank you. Wow. And then she never mentioned it again. That's the other thing. If it were ego, uh, then she would have she would have gone on to do more as an organizer. Uh, she opened up a millinery store in Chicago and never told her family about it, just never talked about it. Uh, whereas uh, the other powerhouse women uh, uh, organizers that I uh, described, uh, Mother Jones was in it her whole life. Uh, Ella Bloor was in it her whole life. Um, Jane Addams, these are people who wrote memoirs and who continued to be very active in organizing and trying to make the world better. Annie, whether it was because she felt culpable in the deaths of the children in Italian Hall, yeah. you know, if the party's your idea and then this happens, Jesus, where do you go with that? She right. just did not want to deal with it anymore. So I, I don't see that in, as, an, as an ego trip for her. That's certainly not after that tragedy. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. questions there anyone else have anything they want to ask well i will say this mary we've gotten a lot of comments there on the chat all very complimentary and Thank usually you. at this point in the talk i ask the author to tell us about what they're writing now will you like to tell us what you're she painting does. now <laughs> <laughs> not writing a damn thing um you know what i have done is uh because uh because i'm so new to this i started uh watercolors it was um uh, uh january of 21 and uh i when i was young i was very interested in art and just it just the, the whole left side of my brain took over and I, you know, science and, and writing and language and all of that uh, took over my life. Um, but I, I uh, decided, you know, what the hell, I'll throw $150 worth of uh, money into uh, uh, watercolor paints and paper and see what happens. And what fascinates me about it is that because I've been so language oriented my whole life, um, when I paint, when the brush hits the hits the paper, it's it it's magic. Things happen that you didn't do. It the the way the pigment sucks up the water and spreads itself over the over the uh, paper is just fascinating to me. And uh, so I do a lot of small scale stuff. Mostly, it's been um, uh, landscapes. Uh, and abstracts. Uh, I have done a number of, of uh, they're called uh, dot and line abstract mark making. That's right up my alley, boy. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't have to have any drafting uh, uh, talent. Um, but I do love working with the color. I love the color. So I make bookmarks. And I 
or on, on my Facebook page, um, again, just my name, uh, I will say, all right, the, uh, the closet door gallery has filled up with paintings that I've made. I just, I, I just tape them on the door of the closet in the, in the room that I use as my, my studio. And uh, if, you, if you order any book, doesn't have to be mine, if you order any book from my local independent bookstore, Max Bax, Books on Co Coventry, Suzanne, the owner, will stick a painting in there for you. Wow. So uh, <laughs> that way, my, my, I don't end up with like piles and piles and piles of things that I work on. But it gives me some focus, and um, uh, and people seem to like them. They're fun. Oh, good. You seem you it, you your face lights up when you talk about it. So that's yeah. See, and that's that's was not happening with writing anymore. Uh, <laughs> the the other thing about about publishing is um, that uh, it's a it's a long haul. Uh, it takes me, uh, based on seven data points, it took me an average of three and a half to four years to write a novel. Some were a little shorter, some took seven, one took seven years. Um, and you get really burned out on whatever that topic is, but it remains uh, part of, you, you're constantly being dragged back to the past and things that you were interested in 15 years ago. Uh, and if you write another book, you know, assuming that it gets picked up by a, a, a publisher, which there's no guarantee. Uh, you, I don't care how many uh, uh, bestsellers you write, there's no guarantee the next one is going to get picked up. But then you've got another 18 months of working with the publisher and doing the editing and doing all the rest of it. And then if you're lucky, you get a book tour, which means two more years of your life mortgaged to that book long after you're really sick of it. So <laughs> I just wasn't, you know, at 72, I didn't want to be doing this when I was 77. <laughs> Don and I had a good time on the, on the, the, the trip up to the UP. Uh, he calls it driving Miss Mary. Uh, we, uh, he, uh, uh, we brought the dachshund with us. We had, we had a fun time, but it's, uh, we're really glad to be home. And we both got sick on this trip, so. Uh, one last question. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Gina would like to know if anybody's thinking about being a writer, a novel writer, do you have any advice for them now that you're about to pass the torch? Um, get any substance uh, abuse problems you have under control. This is, <laughs> it's not an easy way to make a living. It really isn't. Um, marry an engineer. That worked for me. Uh, they get they get health benefits at work and they get well paid. Um, it's it's not easy. And any advice that I would have about how to break into the publishing industry at this point is uh, it's thirty years out of date. Uh, I was only ever published by the big legacy publishers, so like Simon Schuster and HarperCollins and Random House and uh, and and so I'm. I got into the biz in 1995, uh, and I think that at this point I qualify as the dinosaur that has watched the meteor coming streaking in to disrupt the entire industry. Uh, it's a very different uh, place to make a living than it, than it was before. It's hard to make a living as a writer. I tell you what does, you can make a living doing as a writer is technical writing. Mm -hmm. And again, and you might need an engineer. Uh, uh, technical writing is, is uh, uh, the thing that I enjoyed most as a writer, apart from writing Doc, which was a, a pure joy, um, 
but that uh, the ability to go in and speak to people about their uh, their hardware and their software and to come back two days later with uh, clear, accurate instructions for the for the user to use, um, and it was thirty five dollars an hour. So, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, you know, I, if you have to write, put your hands on the keyboard, make some prose happen. Uh, and then edit, 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 edit. That's what people don't get. It took 60 drafts to uh, uh, to get the, the Sparrow to the point at which it became uh, a book that's been in, in, in print now for over 25 years. But boy, it was a long haul. Uh, and uh, I also recommend, like, if you're gonna if you're gonna be writing fiction, uh, it's worthwhile having one or two people who will read for you as you write and tell them, don't break my heart, but I can't fix it if you won't tell me it's broken. You need people who have a, 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 who are passionate readers, uh, not necessarily a writer's workshop because I swear to God, I, you know, here, um, everybody says they want constructive criticism. <laughs> That's a lie. Uh, what everybody wants is 500 words of closely reasoned adulation. And so, you know, uh, you need to find one or two people who can be honest with you and say, my eyes glazed over when I got to this paragraph. I mean, I was interested and then, I don't know, we went too deep into the weeds or something. They don't have to tell you what to change, but they need to be able to tell you, this is where you lost me. Uh, and then it's your job to go back and fix it and bring it back to them and say, does this fix the problem for you? And that kind of back and forth, I think, is very, very helpful if you're going to try and write anything of any length. Wonderful. Yeah. Great advice. And really, Mary, what a pleasure. I don't know if this means anything to you in your in your few moments before retirement, but I worked, <laughs> I worked in a mine for a couple summers. Did anybody else out there work in the mines or just me? Just you. <laughs> so it, it, it's a great book to really talk about I mean of course what I did and what they did totally different but you know yeah. a lot of the right ideas so it was just yeah. a great book and and it, it was great you did a great job I think representing the Upper Peninsula if that means anything to you from me. I am very happy to hear that yes it's yeah. it's it, it, you always you know many there are many writers who tell their own story right they tell their family story they tell their their personal story I never did that. Uh, I always, maybe it's because my background in anthropology where I, my job is to, to, to express for others what was difficult for, for uh, people to understand. Um, so I was always writing somebody else's life, somebody else's history. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it means a great deal to, that uh, the, the women of the Copper Country was so um, enthusiastically uh, received in in the very places where the story took place. Yeah, it wonderful. It was just wonderful and nice Thank talking you. to you tonight. And it's so. I wish we had a cake or something. It's so retire <laughs> here. So let's <coughs> give her a hand as she leaves the writing world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now I'm gonna go go slug down a, a jigger full of Nyquil. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody, and thank you so much for a nice wrap up to 
30-year career. You've been watching the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. To join or for more information, please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com.